0: To listening to the Plain State Podcast, a production of the Department of English at the University of Nebraska Lincoln. In this episode, Robert Lipscomb interviews Laura White, professor of English, about her role in
1: converting a novel about the frontier into an opera set on the plains of Nebraska. My name is Robert Lipscomb, and I am here with Laura White on the occasion of the production and conversion of her new opera. So, you are converting Marie Sandoz, son of a gambling man, to an opera. What What is your role in this conversion? Who are you working with? Who is supporting the project?
0: This is a commissioned opera. It was commissioned by Jane Roman and other folks in Cozad, Nebraska, because it tells the dual story of the founding of Cozad, Nebraska by a very flamboyant, fascinating, Gatsby like. Character, John J. Kozad, And also, it tells the story of his son, who grew up to be the famous artist Robert Henry of the Ashcan School. Um, Henry's name is different from his father's because, at the climax of the opera, we learned that the whole family had to leave Kozad under cover of darkness to avoid lynching. And so they all went off and took on new names. Um, but so the commission came from Jane Roman and other stalwart citizens of COZAB and Friends of Opera and the Wilson Foundation. And my husband, um, Tyler White, who is director of orchestral activities as well as a composer, was commissioned to do the music, but first he needed a little libretto, and I volunteered to do it. Um, the Sandoz book, Is an interesting but not necessarily great work. Uh, It was written late in her career. She died a few years after it was published. In it was published in 1960, and it was late because she was waiting for people to die in Cozad and who were members of the family that she'd gotten all this historical information from before she had the temerity to give this very historical novelization of what happened in Cozat, so it was tact that led it to be so late in her career. Um, It's not a great book, though it's a very interesting one, because the story is interesting. The problem is with the book is that all sorts of horrible things happened in Cozat, Nebraska, in its first decade. A continuing array of natural calamities like grasshopper plagues um, and starving cattle um, and drought and um, fire, prairie fires. Uh, And then added to that was the human dimension of enormous incidents of arson, um, violence, uh, tension between cattlemen and people who are trying to make it an agricultural community. Um, lynchings, gambling, there's just no end to uh, the travail that seems to have hit Cozad, Nebraska. And because of that, the narrative has an and-then, and-then, and-then quality, which can be, in reading, remarkably tedious, very tedious. And of course there's no way in an opera you can put all these tiny little things in. The first thing to go of course was the arson because you can imagine how totally unhelpful it would be to expect anybody to dramatize a series of arson events. Uh, So that was thrown out. What I did was then look for the melodramatic spine of the narrative because operas are at heart melodramas. And that was pretty clearly set. Uh, There's the moment when Kozad comes striding out of nowhere to the 100th meridian, um, boasting of having bought 40,000 acres of Union Pacific land, and explaining that this is going to be his new Washington on the Plains, or the capital of Nebraska, it's going to be a shining white city. um, Which sets the original um, conflict because he's got all that money and he's got all those deeds because he has been an extremely accomplished pharaoh gambler. Um, That should explain briefly that he wasn't cheating. He wasn't a a card cheat. What he was was extraordinarily good at counting cards. So pharaoh is a game where you're just basically guessing what card is under. It's a very simple game. And it's very simple in the way that blackjack is simple. And so if you have a, a good eidetic memory and a very brilliant you can really make a lot of money with, with Pharaoh.
1: So I'm out. Not, I'm not a good Pharaoh player, most likely. Probably not. Okay.
0: I wouldn't be either, right? <laughs> but there are people, you know, when you play bridge or whatever, they can, they know where everything else is in the other people's hands and so on. So it was that kind of talent. But his ambitions for Kozad were that it would be a city absolutely unstained by gambling. He himself, of course, was a gambler and a man of violence and a man of you know a very sort of shaky, shaky past. He tried to make a, a town in Ohio called Cozad Dale, and that hadn't worked out. He tried to make another Cozad-like town down somewhere in South America, that hadn't worked out. But he was one of those 19th-century you know sort of utopian builders right, with these grand schemes for a perfect world, a perfect place. And of course, at the 100th Meridian on the Platte River in those days, there was nothing. It was empty prairie. So out of pretty much sheer will, he built a town, but within 10 years, um, the citizenry becomes more and more dissatisfied with him. There are more and more incidents of violence and just trouble of one kind or another, some of which is not his fault, we cannot blame the grasshopper plague on him, right? But nonetheless his flamboyance and his arrogance ultimately leads for the town to petition to get a new name. Um, they want to be named after John Jay Gould, <laughs> the Union Pacific magnate, which is a bad idea of course, but they actually petition and get the, the town's name changed and this becomes the climax of the plot where he has an altercation with one of the main um, antagonists of the citizenry. And this, of course, actually happened. There was a violent conflict. The guy tried to stab him. He shot him back in self-defense. And then, of course, it looks like he's going to be lynched, and so he and the family um, have to skedaddle out under cover of darkness. Um, Then the story also has a frame story which accommodates the whole portrait of the artist as a young man. plot, Uh, you see the young Robert Henry within the main frame of it, he's watching all this unfolding violence and all the ways in which his father is coming into conflict with Cozadians or Cozadites or whatever they were, Um, and sketching all the time, sketching passenger pigeons and buffalo and Sioux Indian and so on. But you also see the frame story is Robert Henry painting his father's portrait in New York City in 1903, when Kozat is now called Richard H. Lee, and Henry is now Robert Henry, but they're still father and son. And so you get the, the very operatic convention of how will I paint him, how do I know him, what kind of man is this, and that you have to then have the kind of retrospective through memory to come to a clearer adjudication Henry does before he can properly make the splendid portrait he actually did make. That Those portraits, by the way, Henry's own self-portrait and uh, his father's portrait are going to be shown in uh, the Sheldon for the week before the opera is produced on the f- November 15th and 17th, Friday 7.30, Sunday 3 o'clock.
1: You mentioned that you needed to cut the arson out of the plot for, I think, perhaps obvious reasons. It would be dramatic, but otherwise obvious reasons. For the uninitiated into opera, uh, could you give some insight into what stories, in general, maybe lend themselves to good opera?
0: Sure, you have to have basic criminal conflict, Oh, right? um, well, what I was taught in the seventh grade—you know—it's man against nature, man against society, man against himself. You've gotta have those things. We have plenty of nature because we have a cattle um, stampede in there. My poor husband had to write a cattle stampede and he had to write a grasshopper plague, which really great grasshopper plague. Um, But so the natural difficulties are there as a kind of continuing background of trauma. Um, But And of course, there's plenty of Kozad himself trying to wrestle this community into being what he wants. But then there's also the basic hypocrisy of Kozad's own basic flaws. It's not just that he's arrogant, but that he is trying to make a perfect world without gambling when he himself has made God all of his money through gambling and is still gambling. Every time the little community needs more money, he just says, pressing business, gets on the train and goes off to Omaha or Chicago and comes back flush with more cash. So that basic. Um, That basic thing. And the other thing is I looked through the book and I tried to find scenes of conflict which were particularly visual, that would lend themselves to um, being on a stage that would look dramatic and would look interesting. So, for instance, at the climax of the plot, this isn't in the book, but remember the petition has been changed from Kozad to Gould, and all along there's been a, a town sign prominently displayed as Cozad gets bigger of Kozad right and so Pearson the guy who's the antagonist um, is up on a ladder repainting the sign and it was very nice for me that Cozad and Gould are both five letter uh, words and that you can just show the paint turning the C to a G and then the O and then just sort of getting rid of the Z and turning it into a U and it's exactly as he is repainting the sign that Kozad storms down upon him and they begin to have this altercation. Now that wasn't, the petition was true, the altercation was true in terms of the novel, but the sign and the repainting was something I just thought of as a very cool way of providing a dramatic central visual for what is the heart of this conflict. So I chose scenes that had that would look like a good dramatic thing on stage.
1: Good, so is this the first libretto you've written?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, what made you decide to do it? Money. Okay, fair enough. Um, <laughs> asked and answered. Mm-hmm. Um, another question.
0: And it was it's interesting and it was fun to do. In fact, when I finished it, I thought I would just hand it over to Ty and just let, he would then do all the music and I would be done with it. But it turned out that as he was composing it, we just did all sorts of collaboration and had all sorts of interesting conversations about what I really meant about the character or how um, the music would portray all of this. And so it turned out to be, for me, a, a very interesting kind of thing to do. So I'm glad I did it. I'm not just sort of chortling over the simoleons.
1: <laughs> Good. Um Shortle away, please yeah, do. Um, short, short. Was 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 every collaborative collaborative moment utterly pleasurable as you yeah, indicated? Okay, it
0: was, it was all pretty straightforward. Okay, I, I think um, I various points just kept telling him to cut, you know, make things shorter and more economical, um, because a good opera has to work like a finely tuned plot. That you can't have periods of longers. or you know, there are arias, of course, where. Um, the characters can dilate on their emotions. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, it has to tick along um, really expeditiously. Oh, and I should say something about the other source of the arias. Henri's come from his, most of the words in his arias come from what he wrote in The Art Spirit, which was an art manifesto he published in 1923, like many modernist manifestos, sort of shorter sentences or paragraphs where he's just trying to impressionistically, I think, describe his theory of art, his understanding of how art works and so on. It's actually a very beautiful book, Uh, but those are the words that I then stole from primarily to make his arias.
1: You've talked about your goals for the project and you've talked about the collaboration. Um, What, if any, were some of the challenges even you faced while Converting this? What were some of the challenges that you, you faced during this process?
0: I think I had to have the courage to not worry about leaving vast swaths of the novel on the cutting room floor. Um, and in fact, I haven't read the whole thing.
1: <laughs> Fair enough.
0: Um, because once I had the key scenes and I already knew the frame and I also knew what the client climax was, right? It had to be this violent confrontation where they leave Kozad. That obviously has to be the climax of the plot, right? Um, And the frame story the painting was already set. So all I needed was a series of interesting events that showed crisis and conflict between Kozad and um, the world he's trying to make. And there were plenty of good places. I mean, there's the Grasshopper Plague. The way he responds to the Grasshopper Plague is to a make work project because there's nothing left, right? There's no green. It's just devastation. And so he says, aha, I'm just gonna pay everybody to build a bridge over the plat. And he tried to make a sod bridge. As Jane has told me, that bridge was never built, but it kept the little community going for about another nine months. He was basically just giving them money. But when it came to pay them, the payday scene, he came, Um, to all of his workmen for the first month's pay and dumped a huge bag of gold and greenbacks into a wheelbarrow in this completely ostentatious kind of way, like, look how wealthy I am, and here's the gold I'm going to... and then doled it all out to them. And they naturally resented this showmanship of patronage, right? Um, And the various angers and frustrations that had been boiling up particularly since the grasshoppers had eaten everything, um, meant that some of the more, um, the more disgruntled of the citizenry, actually, you know, there's conflict, right. And the scene ends in fact with a, um, a noose being hung in front of his house. right? But it's a great visual. Yes. This dumping of the, all the money in this wheelbarrow and then the paying out and then the, you know, ultimately it's a, a big scene with Kozat on one side talking, you know, singing about ingrates and um, the mother singing again and again, oh God, it looks like we're going to, it's going to be like it was in Ohio. <laughs> and then the disgruntled citizens off, you know, saying, oh, he thinks he's a damn king. You know, we don't have kings in this country. And then the other citizenry just saying, you know, what are we going to do? It's a, so, yeah, it made, it made for a nice big visual dramatic moment. So once I had three or four of those scenes, then I was good.
1: Can you say a little more about the novel itself?
0: Sure.
1: At least the parts you've read. The
0: part I've read. I <laughs> <laughs> no, it's terrible.
1: Um, was, it, um, was it popular when it was published? Not yeah, uh,
0: particularly. She was very disappointed that it wasn't a bigger bestseller. Um, she thought it was going to be a big hit, but it wasn't partly because she'd written two books back in the 30s that were um, indictments of Lincoln. One was called Capital City. I'm forgetting the title of the other one. Uh, but both were kind yeah. of...
1: And that's Lincoln, the city.
0: Lincoln, Nebraska, Lincoln, the Nebraska. city. Um, where, of course, our performances are going to be. And the she had to actually move out to Denver. She'd been living in Lincoln. So she writes this kind of expose of... What Lincoln's really like, right? And this was in the 30s, and the citizenry was so annoyed by this, not very—it um, wasn't a puff piece at all, right? That she had to move out to Denver for years. The citizenry, who might perhaps have been the folks most interested in reading, Nebraskans were already a little soured on her uh, because because of what she'd already written. But anyhow. I think it didn't sell because it's got too much stuff in it. It's just ding, 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 ding. And all sorts of people have told me that they've tried to read it, you know, just because they want it, particularly folks on in Cozad, they've tried to read it because they wanted to be prepared for the opera. Um, I should have said, you don't have to do that. <laughs> but they have, to a person, proclaimed that they found the novel tedious. It is tedious. What's good about it, though, I don't want to leave it as if it's just a failure. It isn't. She's really good at key, interesting scenes, and she's really good at dialogue. And both those things made it a lot easier to write a libretto, right? Yes. So I lifted much of the the dialogue from what was just directly already there in the book.
1: Okay, can we take a couple of closer looks at some of the scenes that you've written? Certainly. Okay, so I am going to, um, speaking of characters, speaking of scenes, I'm going to read um, a summary of the action taking place on the stage, and I'd like you to comment on it real quick. In Act 2, Scene 3, okay. um, uh, gamblers enter Cozad while John J. Kozad is away and set up a pharaoh table in the stables. Looking on, Robert is pressured by the gamblers into taking $20 betting money as partial payment of rent to his father. Kozad returns and destroys the Pharaoh table with an axe. You've touched on this before, but uh, why does Kozad see this as an axe-worthy offense?
0: (laughs) Because not only is it gambling in his pure white city, his son is there being tempted into Gambling himself, um, it turns out to be a complete setup. They're trying to the money is um, counterfeit. They're trying to pin a crime on on little Robert. It's all nasty. These are nasty people, but he totally loses his temper. It's as if they brought the one thing he was trying to keep out into the heart of his his little town, and there is his son um, being corrupted as well. It. The emotional climax of that scene actually happens after he's destroyed the table with an axe. Bill Shomos, who is the director of um, opera, did not in fact actually let them have an axe. So there's no actual axing. He just breaks it all up in a very violent way. But Bill was just afraid of, I think, litigation and liability issues, you know, axes just sort of here and there. So the axe got axed. Um, But it's an axe in the novel. And he's motivated exactly because the thing he most wanted to protect and, you know, it's as if his basic hypocrisy is also being exposed because he's returning from playing pharaoh somewhere else.
1: You know, I've seen a lot of opera. Yeah. Um, the, the big ones, mostly um, yeah. uh, Carmen, uh, Lucia de Lammermoor, Not a big one. But, um,
0: very improbable plot.
1: Very, yes. But a lovely sextet. Yeah. Um, but I've never actually seen an ax. I've seen a lightning bolt on the floor. Yeah. I've seen many, many things, but you're right. I've never seen an ax in opera. Perhaps there are no axes in opera.
0: Yeah. Well, I, if, of... if anybody produces it right, there'll be an ax in <laughs> an opera, but you know, you can't have everything.
1: Sounds good. Um, <laughs> was there another scene you wanted to Yeah. Mention?
0: Well, the very first scene in the second act, is also a good example of what makes a good visual on stage. So, this guy we've never seen before, who, it comes out, his name is Odell, he's somebody from Kozad's past. He comes on stage bellowing for Kozad and saying, I want Kitty, where's Kitty? Roll out Kitty for me. And he's a dangerous guy. The music shows that really beautifully. Ty has written some really louche, you know. Um, bad guy music for him to stroll through when he's waving a gun around too so he demands kitty and it becomes plain that kitty probably was somebody that Kozad had been having an affair with he's married and has been married for a long time and his wife is there but yeah you know, he's had as i said a, a checkered past right and so odell starts saying where's kitty and that becomes plain that that's ridiculous because Kitty is dead. He says, you, she hung herself with your tie. So I want $25,000. Here are the letters. Right here, I have all this packet of letters you wrote her. I want $25,000, which, of course, would be an enormous amount of money, right, um, for these letters. And Kozad, who is a very cool cucumber, and you can get a, he's a very impressive person for all of his flaws, uh, just takes this in stride and says, sort of laughs, 25000 eh? And he just grabs the packet out of Odell's hands. And there's his wife, Teresa, and he says, Here, my dear, why don't you open this packet and see if it's worth 25000 And Teresa opens it up, and yet inside is nothing but newspaper clippings. And so you've got this wonderful visual, right, of the packet with these streaming bits of just newspaper to show, you know, the deflation of the antagonist, so Odell, you know, slinks off, having been defeated and exposed, but then in the very next scene, Teresa actually has her one and only aria, um, exactly on her memories of her wedding day, and it's all about really the pain, the unspoken pain, of being married to this man all these years, where you're never really quite sure how trustworthy he is, what he's doing. Um, whether he's been faithful to her, he probably hasn't. Um, it's, it's, it's a beautiful setup for it. But you see what I mean about the visualizations. Uh, Yeah.
1: Definitely. So, Co- Co- Cozat, Nebraska, a real place, mm-hmm. population 4,000 mm-hmm. about, mm-hmm. was founded as a pristine center of virtuous, upright, non-gambling people right. built exclusively on gambling money.
0: Correct.
1: Uh, with a book written about it that is impenetrable for the most part by all who encounter it.
0: It's not impenetrable. <laughs> or just It's tedious. perfectly easy to read. Okay. It just goes on
1: forever. Goes on for A little longish. But now has a brilliant opera.
0: Yes, it does.
1: Excellent. Um, can you remind us again? Um, it's making its Lincoln, Nebraska debut.
0: Right. It premiered in Cozad on October 17th in the Cozad High School. But it was rapturously received, so that was lovely. And it will be in Kimball Recital Hall on the campus of the University of Nebraska Lincoln on Friday, uh, November fifteenth at seven thirty, and then Sunday at three o'clock um, in you know as a as a matinee, and it's also going to be web streamed by the School of Music. The Friday performance will be web-streamed, so people can watch it from wherever.
1: And we will try to put that link in our show notes okay, for this episode. Yeah, Thank you very much, um, Dr. Laura Wa- Dr. Laura White, uh, professor of English and burgeoning librettist. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs>
0: thank you, Robert.
1: Special thanks to Laura White. The Gambler's Summit's
0: Lincoln debut on November 15th at the Temple Recital Hall, at the University of Nebraska Plain State is produced by Robert Lipscomb, post-production by Stephen Ramsey, music by Shadows on a River. My name is Mitchell Evans. On behalf of the Department of English at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, thank you for listening to the Plain State Podcast, tagline forthcoming.